Romans chapter 13. This is not going to be a, a fun message for some of us in this room. Um, it's going to be maybe a tough message for some of us in this room, and it's going to be, it's really going to cause us to, to really have an inner, inner battle of where I should be, what I should be doing, and how I should be perceiving things, and, and what is my role as a Christian, and, and, and what is the role of a Christian in modern-day politics. And you go, oh, oh, wait a minute, separation of church and state. You know, let's not talk about government. Well, I don't, I won't, unless the Bible tells me I should. And, and as I do, the same thing with tithes. You know, many people, you know, many churches, they talk about tithes. That's basically 90% of their mess. So I'm not all churches by any means. I don't want to trash any church out there that does not do that. But, you know, oftentimes churches will go in here, you'll go into a church and all they talk about are tithes. And, and uh, that's not what we are about. We're, listen, we believe in tithing. We believe in, in giving to the Lord. You know, I mean, we couldn't meet here unless it was for all of you. And uh, it's how the Lord provides for the church and how the Lord provides for those that we support missionary-wise and, and how we support people benevolent-wise and, and how the church is, is, uses itself not just spiritually but also financially. And so tithes are a very important part of our church. But it's not something that if you've been here for the last six months, how many times have you heard me talk about tithing? Um, I, I talk about it when it comes up in Scripture, and I'm not going to shy away from it. Same thing with politics. I'm not going to really talk too much about politics, though I've probably talked about more about politics recently because of vid, you know various things that have happened, you know, with the Supreme Court passing gay marriage right and what have you. And you know, I spent basically a whole message on that because it was something that was very prevalent in our society and our and in the church. How do we perceive that? What is it that we do? What do we do with that as Christians politically? I don't try to get too political from the pulpit, though I will every once in a while, but has never been my intent or nor my purpose. However, today in our passage today in Romans chapter 13 verses 1 through 7, that's all we're going to go through today. We're going to talk about government and how it is that we are to interact with government, how we are to be perceiving government, and how we are to be living our life in light of government. You can jot this note down. You don't have to turn there, but in Isaiah chapter 9, kind of as a context and a preface, a preface, preface, preface as a preface um, for our message today, our preface for our message today. There's a verse in the Bible, a couple of verses in the Bible that we see every Christmas time, and it's an, a very popular verse that we see on Christmas cards, uh, Christian Christmas cards that are being sent one to another. And, and it said in verse 6, of chapter 9 of Isaiah, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And oftentimes that's all that's spoken there on the card, you know. Yeah, oh, well, we're celebrating the birth of Jesus. You know, we're celebrating the birth of Jesus. But the rest of that verse says, And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment, from that time forward even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So we have a verse that when you take this verse 6, we know, for unto us a child is born, 
We know the last half of the verse, which says, in his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince, you know, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We know that part. But oftentimes what we miss and what we never really focus on and never really emphasize, and that is, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And so here's the thing. Is the government truly upon the shoulder of God? I know as you're sitting there right now, you might be going, no, absolutely not. I'm going to read the first seven verses to just infuriate you real quick, and then we're going to talk. All right, here we go. Paul writing, he says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment upon themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. You want to be unafraid of the authority? Then do what is good. And you'll have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you. You see that? For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Verse 1, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now the word subject, in the Greek, this word is used of a soldier's absolute obedience to a superior officer. It literally means to be placed under, to subjugate, to place in submission. And so when we look at that, let every soul be placed under submission to the governing authorities. And as if Paul needed to answer the question of what would obviously be your, be your next statement out of your mouth, Understanding maybe a government that you're living under. And that would be, why would God ever want me to submit myself under a government that actually doesn't serve him? Paul says, well, here's the reason. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed from God. And right there, that has just divided our room. Because right now, some of us in this room are going, absolutely not, God did not appoint our present government. Maybe you're here today and you just absolutely detest you know, Barack Obama and you go, there's no way that God appointed Barack Obama. Or maybe you, know, you, uh, you know, were a Bush hater and you said there was absolutely no way that God ever appointed George Bush. No way. Wait. I ask a couple of questions here. If all authority, every government has been placed in position and appointed by God, 
How do we reconcile that? If God is a good God, how can he possibly put people in positions of authority that do not fear him? There's one big world authority that I I think of that almost took over the world and it basically caused the world to come together as the allies to come together and to destroy and uproot him from the earth. And his name would be Hitler. Adolf Hitler. And if we read this passage correctly, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there is no Hitler except from God and the Hitler that, that, that did exist was appointed by God. Ah, how? I don't understand. Well, that hits a little close to home. Maybe our per- current uh, president right now to you hits a little close to home and you go, no, I can't. I can't fathom this idea that... And Paul's wrong here. God didn't appoint this guy. God didn't appoint Adolf Hitler. Well, let's look back a little bit. Know that when Paul was writing this, there was a man by the name of Caesar Tiberius. Actually, when Paul was writing this book, uh, when Jesus was alive, alive, the Roman emperor was Caesar Tiberius. I'm sorry. The Caesar that was alive... While Paul wrote and penned these words was a man by the name of Caesar Nero. Caesar Nero. And if any of you have done any of your ancient history and you go back and you look at who Caesar Nero was, you would understand that no present government that we have even comes close. Unless you're talking about ISIS, maybe. Nero as he was nicknamed Caesar Necho, which literally means Caesar Caesar the Maniac, because he went crazy. He went crazy so far that he would he detested Christians so much that in his courtyard, which was a large courtyard there in Rome, he would impale Christians after dipping them in hot tar. He would take a stake and he would take their, spread their legs and impale them down and they would be hanging on stakes, obviously dead. Dip them in tar, stick them up in his courtyard, light them on fire and ride his chariot using them basically as pylons Crying out, yes, you are the the world. No matter how much you don't like our president, I'm going to say he's nothing like that. He's nothing like that. And yet Paul writes this. Paul, you're telling me that Caesar Nero was appointed by God? We might look at that and say, that's blasphemous. Because no way would God ever appoint a man like that. Well, let's look at it even different. If every government, understand, we sometimes can be very myopic. And what myopic means is that we focus so much, so 
like we're nearsighted. We, we sit here and we look at just what we are familiar with. And so we in this country can sometimes become so myopic and think, well, it's just the United States government. How could that possibly be? But when you consider this, the United States wasn't even a thought at the time of this writing. And so when you consider this, it's every government. It's Iran's government. It's as Alan West has called him, the little pudgy man with a bad haircut in North Korea. It's that guy. It's Putin. It's every world leader has been appointed by God. And you go, I'm okay, I'm having a hard time with this. Well, if we were to go back even just a little bit further, we begin to see that God had handpicked even other men. It's hard to to fathom this. Jeremiah chapter 27, you can turn there if you'd like. You don't have to, but in Jeremiah chapter 27, what we see is a man that Jeremiah the prophet he is speaking and he's writing on behalf of the Lord. And in chapter 27, it says, beginning in verse 4, command them to say to their masters, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, thus you shall say to your masters, I have made the earth, the man, and the beasts that are on the ground, by my great power and by my outstretched arm. We sometimes, there's songs that are out there, worship songs and praise songs that talk about how God's arm is mighty and powerful. His outstretched arm is. And it says, and I have given it to whom, I, whom it seemed proper to me. Let me read that again. I, this is God speaking through Jeremiah. I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are on the ground by my great power and by my outstretched arm and have given it to whom it seemed proper to me. Okay, do we we have a problem with God saying what he said thus far? I can't sit down. This just bothers me. Do we have a problem with God saying, I'm God, I can do this. I hope not. I hope not. Because if if you do, you have a problem with God. And hopefully we'll come to some sense of a conclusion on that. Maybe, you know, some some sense of an answer, you know, to and, and help on understanding a little bit about who God is here in just a few moments. But But if God is really who he is, who the Bible presents him to be, he's good. We opened up, you know, our our little intro today in that God is good. If God is good, how can some of these people be placed into power if God is good? If God is the one that says, I place these people into power as it seems proper to me. He goes on in verse 6, as if you think, okay, well, he's talking about David maybe. King David. He's talking about an Israeli king. 
that is going to really minister to the Jews, minister to the Hebrews, synonymous terms, one's Old Testament, one's new. And so he's talking about an Israeli king, a Jewish king, Hebrew king. That's who he's talking about. No, has nothing to do with a Jewish king. Oh, he was a king of the Jews. He became the king of the Jews because he became the king of the entire known world at the time. God says, I have given it to whom it seemed proper to me. And now I, God, have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, which is modern day Iraq, my servant. Wow, I'm having a hard time with that. And the beasts of the field I have also given to him to serve them, to serve him. So all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the time of his land comes. And then many nations and great kings shall make him serve them. So here's what God does. I, I state this. In fact, what I say is that I am going to appoint a man. I'm going to appoint a man that's not a believer in God. I'm going to appoint a Persian, not a Persian, he wasn't a Persian, he was a Babylonian king in modern day Persia. It was Babylon at the time. By the way, he was the most wicked king ever that we've seen upon the face of the earth. And also, by the way, if you go back in history and you consider who was the last true world dictator that we had upon the face of the earth. Was it Adolf Hitler? No, he was never a world dictator. He tried to be, but he wasn't. Well, it must have been one of the Caesars. No, Caesar never had, none of the Caesars had total and utter control of the earth. But there was one king that did. And the one king that did, his name was Nebuchadnezzar. It was Nebuchadnezzar. Of whom, by the way, I don't know if you know, this is just a little sidelight, has nothing to do with our study. Saddam Hussein called himself a direct descendant of Nebuchadnezzar in Iraq. And so here, uh, it's not modern-day Persia. I said modern-day Persia. It's not Iran. Iran is modern-day Persia. You know, is is former Persia. You know, Iraq is uh, former Babylon. And so here's what we have: God is saying, "I am going to hand lands over to whom I seem it's proper to me. I, I am going to give all of the lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, who is a ruthless." evil dictator where if his mouth speaks a law if his mouth speaks something it's law you know I, I want every you know blonde haired person to you know have their heads cut off, cut off and as they begin to cut their I'm blonde too so that I just incorporated myself there so I don't mean anything with you blonde people in here listen uh, you know no I really have dark roots you know <laughs> um <laughs> You know, I command that every blonde person have their head lopped off. And then two or three people start getting their head lopped off. And he goes, I command that no more blondes have their heads lopped off. Well, you, he could be as fickle as he wanted to be because his word was law. And they had to obey his word. You see, it didn't happen that way. Even with, even with the Caesars, they had to go through councils. They had to go through and have things changed and ratified and, and approved and what have you. But Nebuchadnezzar, his word was bond. His word was law. And he was evil. 
And he is the one who went in and destroyed Israel and took them captive and killed many, many men and women and children and took only a select handful of young men in order to go in to retrain them to become some of his own wise men from another part of the earth. He actually had different wise men from different lands that he had conquered, and he brought them in to try to teach them in his way, in his government, in order to teach, in order to counsel him in life. He would hear them, but then he, if he didn't like it, he could kill them. Of which, there were four young boys that were taken captive, and you remember who their names were? Daniel? Yeah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, there's a, there's a, uh, a pastor. His name was uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge. And he's still alive today, I believe. And, and uh, we actually had him at our Bible college out in California. And uh, he's a black fella, and he's just fiery, man. He is so fiery. And he, he's the one, if you've ever heard, do you know him? Have you ever heard that, you know, that rendition? Do you know him? I wish I could explain him to you. My God is, and he begins to just lay out all these things. And you, by the time you're done, you would run your head through a brick wall going, man, I'll fight for whatever this guy just said because God's awesome, you know. And you're just excited, you know. He fires you up and what have you. But he came to our Bible college and he said, my name is Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge. And I, a lot of people ask me why I changed my name to Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge because... And not Abednego. He goes, because Abednego sounded a lot like a bad Negro. And I didn't want that. So I just Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge. I say what he said. That is what he said. He was a crack up. He was a crack up. He was awesome. And here's the thing. Here's, I don't really know his doctrine or anything. But I mean, that quote, what he did was pretty awesome. Not that quote I just said, but the, the, the do you know him. You can look it up on the internet and it'll fire you up, I promise. Here's the thing. Shattering Meshach and Abednego, that was, those weren't Jewish names. Those were, you know, uh, Babylonian names that, that, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar's men had given to, to the boys. But those are the four boys that we know, right? How is it that God would handpick Nebuchadnezzar, an evil, wicked dictator that would kill people and completely and totally basically wiped out all of Israel? And you're here, Jeremiah telling me that he is God's chosen vessel, he's God's servant? Well, now people might go, well, it's no wonder that Jeremiah really had no converts. Jeremiah, his whole life, he was the weeping prophet because no, he, he, would, he would preach and nobody ever got saved. <laughs> you know, he, would, he gave his life to the Lord and nobody ever responded. Nobody ever really gave a rip about what, you know, Jeremiah ever said. Can you imagine living your whole life and everybody just ignores you? Here, Jeremiah, they're ignoring Jeremiah. Well, you're saying that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be our God's servant. That's preposterous. Well, and then it happened. And all of a sudden, people began to take notice of what Jeremiah said. Why do I know that? Because in the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel, we find that Daniel, after 70 years had passed, because Jeremiah said, hey, by the way, this servant of God, Nebuchadnezzar, is going to take Israel captive for 70 years. He's going to wipe out many of them, but he's going to take, uh, take a lot of Israel captive for 70 years and take them into Babylon. But after 70 years, God is going to revisit Israel, and he's going to bring them back into his own land. 
And Daniel, he writes in Daniel chapter 9, the very first part, he says, listen, I determined by the number of days spoken of by Jeremiah the prophet that our years were, were coming to an end. We, it's close to 70 years, he said. And so I want, I want to be used by God. I've been here for 70 years. Daniel would be saying, God, how can you use me? And it is probably one of the greatest prayers in all of the Bible. Go back and read it. The very first portion of the chapter of, of, of chapter 9 of Daniel. It's an awesome prayer. Because as far as we know, Daniel was a man who always dedicated his heart to God. He always lived his life for the Lord. And here's the thing. He never gave up what it was that, that he you know, chose to be in life. And so, so here's the thing that Daniel did. Daniel, he lived his life constantly praying to the Lord, constantly relying on the Lord, constantly offering himself unto the Lord. And here's the thing. At the end of his life, Daniel, or at the end of his days there in, that, in, in Babylon, Daniel goes, you know what, Lord? Because I see that our time's coming to an end, I'm going to come and I'm going to pray. And in his prayer, he says, we have sinned. We have done these things. We, and he includes himself into the sins of his nation. And he incorporates himself. But there's no record that Daniel ever had any partaking of that. He included himself in his nation. And he says, hey, we, we bear shame on our face, Lord, because of our actions. And Lord, you had all right to do what you did. But now, Lord, I understand by 70 years, you're going to bring us back. And so, Lord, let it be. And so Daniel, he sees that. Now, here's the thing. All of this said, God picked Nebuchadnezzar for a word. And, and we look at that and we go, well, God called Nebuchadnezzar his servant. If you go through the book of Daniel, you'll see that God did use uh, an instance, in, a couple instances in Nebuchadnezzar's life to bring him to himself. I believe in heaven, I believe that we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar. Personally, I'm, I'm of the opinion that we will see Nebuchadnezzar one day. But here's the thing. God handpicked Nebuchadnezzar. But don't miss this point. I have given, I have made the earth, the man, and the beasts that are on the ground by my great power and by my outstretched arms and have given it to whom it seemed proper to me. For some reason, unbeknownst to me, unbeknownst to you, unbeknownst to any journalist that's out there, any TV station that's out there, God handpicked and appointed, he seemed proper to him to put into power the Ayatollah Khomeini. He put into power Barack Obama. He put into power Adolf Hitler, Nebuchadnezzar, the chubby dude with a fat with a bad haircut. I can't remember his name. What's his name? Kim Song Yu or something like that? Huh? Un. Kim Song Un? Kim Jong. Kim Jong Un. Put him into power and you go, I don't see that. I mean, come on, that's not God. No, it is God. If you got a problem with that, you got to just look at history and understand that God is not here to perfect the world through government systems here. I got to hurry with this point because here's the thing. We're starting to run out of time, but here's the thing. Why did God, why does God do what he does? Because God is not trying to perfect the earth. 
here today. Jesus, when he came on the scene, what did he do? Did he try to reform Rome? No, he didn't. Did he try to, you know, picket, you know, uh, you know, outside of, of, of Roman government buildings, things that they were doing? And by the way, government buildings had bathhouses. Bathhouses had massive orgies inside of them. And I know that maybe we suspect that there's a lot of politicians that are, you know, running around and, and, and entering into some hanky-panky here and there. The thing is, is that it's usually hidden. Except, I guess, I hear this last week that uh, a lot of people are starting to get outed by this, by this uh, website. Uh, this cheater's website that just came out. I, that's shocking. And, and, and that they're names would be in that. But they put their names in it because they wanted to have extramarital affairs, this Ashley Madison thing. And I, I, I'm, I don't feel sorry for the hackers going in there and opening up and exposing these guys that are doing that. How can you do that to your marriage? But see, we look at that and we go, well, this should have been secretive. It was supposed to be 100% you know, uh, uh, secretive and, and, and secure. Well, here's the thing. Back in the days of, that Paul's living in, they didn't have any, hey, I'm going to hide this. No, that was open orgies. There were open, that was open prostitution. It was open uh, temples that were dedicated to you know, various gods. Great is I, Diana of the Ephesians. Paul dealt with them in Ephesus where Diana was the goddess of fertility where people would go in and, and part of their sacrifice to, to Diana was to sleep with the temple prostitutes. And so we live in a pretty bad time, but I'm going to say that it was probably as bad if not worse back then. And yet the gospel was going forth. I don't see Paul standing outside of Ephesus temple, uh, you know, of Artemis or a Greek, you know, the, the temple of Diana, you know, picketing going, you know, hey, you know, the, 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 the Westboro chapel of Tarsus, you know, uh, <laughs> picketing and, and saying things out there or, or, or even, you know, any of these, now, am I, am I against picketing? No, I, I'm not necessarily. I, I, listen, if God's called you to, to, to be involved in that, then, then so be it. But make sure God's called you to be in that. I know one thing that God's called you to be, and that's called to be a disciple. God's called you, God's called me, God's called us as the church, not just Calvary Chapel Christian Fellowship, but God has called all of us as the church that calls upon the name of Jesus Christ. That's every, you know, gamut of the denominations that truly have a a, a relationship with Jesus Christ. He's called every one of us to go into all the world and preach the good news. The good news is that it's the gospel. The good news is that God sent his son to die on a cross for your sin. And he rose again three days later to pay for your sin and come back up satisfying the righteous requirements that God has to pay for the penalty of your sin. He rose again for you. And now upon believing in him, you are no longer under 
the judgment of sin and death because Jesus Christ paid your penalty. That's the good news. The bad news is that you are condemned to hell. The good news is that Jesus Christ has made a way that you don't have to be there. God's plan has never been to reform a government. God's plan has never been to go in and reform it from government down. God's plan has always been to reach the people with the gospel. It always has. It's not changed. And I know we're in a very, very tumultuous time here right now in our country, and we are a very divided country. Probably as divided as we've ever been since the Civil War time. We are a divided country. But know this, it is not about the United States of America. I'm a patriot. I love the United States of America, but I'm a Christian first. And my job, our job, is to follow Christ. That's what we are to do. We are to be about our Father's business. Jesus didn't wrap himself up, you know, you know trying to reform King Herod. He didn't try to get Pilate to change you know, the, 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 the government. He didn't try to, to go and, and appeal to Caesar to change his ways. He didn't do any of those things. What he did is he reached people to share with them the gospel. To share with them the gospel. And, and so when we look at that and we consider, all right, now, if God's plan is to save mankind person by person by using his church, you and I, our job isn't political reformation. Our job is individual evangelization, evangelism, individual evangelism. It's to go out and preach and reach the people for Christ. So Paul sits there, he says, listen, let every subject be or let every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there is one authority there is no authority excuse me except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God therefore whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves um, we are called to be law abiding citizens in our country it's not as hard as it would be in other countries in our country, it's not as hard to live for Christ as it is in other countries. I, would we all agree on that statement? I, I think that there's other countries that Christianity is absolutely closed off to. But here's the thing. Every person who reads this book, and I don't care where you live, where you reside, it's not, this isn't, you know, uh, uh, focusing on the United States of American Christians. This is, this is focused on a world vision on a world people for every single man woman upon the face of this earth are lost without Christ. And so here's the thing. This is talking to people in China, in North Korea, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in the United States, in Mexico, in Costa Rica, wherever you are want to be. Whatever nation you're in, this word is speaking to you and it's saying, listen, abide by the civil authorities that are over you. You do what they call you to do. I, God, have placed them in position of power as it seemed proper to me to do what? I don't know all of God's plans, but I know one thing. God has a plan for the face of this earth. 
God has a plan for each individual upon the face of this earth. And again, it's not political reformation. It's to draw all men to himself. And how he accomplishes that purpose does many things. We look at Adolf Hitler. I don't know that the, that the Jews would ever have a, a homeland right now if it were not for Adolf Hitler. How do you even ever come to that kind of a conclusion, Pastor Don? Well, because of the incredible genocide that they had to endure. It brought the sympathies of the world stage upon the Jews. And when they asked for a country to call their own, when they asked for their land to call their own, the nations came together and by a, by a slim margin, they agreed and said, yes, you need a land. And they gave them a land back because for goodness sakes, who could ever endure such a potential, you know, a... a, a, a uh, a, 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 an attempt at genocide, an attempt to wipe out your people. Of course we're going to give you land. We're going to give you your own land. And since that point, we've got a hotbed over the Middle East, don't we? Israel. May 14, 1948, they became a nation. And so it's in all of this, guys, that God has a plan. I don't know what that plan is, other than I know that he has a day that is coming to an end very soon. There's coming a day where his plan is going to be realized and when you and I look in hindsight to it, we're going to go, Lord, that was a beautiful plan. That was an awesome plan. That was right. That was right. If I believe the first couple words of the Bible, in the beginning God, four words, if I can understand that, then and, and I believe in that with every ounce of my being, then, then I can believe that God can handle the world governments. And I understand, and I can, I can believe that God has a plan for the leaders that he's even put over in our own country. And so, here's the thing. There is a lot of division in our country right now where we look at and we go, my goodness, can we take much more of this? Well, again... If you are if you are a, a a patriot only, and you're not a, and and you you say I'm a Christian, but I'm a patriot, you know, and and your focus is only on your nation, well then you're going to be sadly disappointed because you know what, it's not about the United States of America, it's about God, it's about heaven, it's about eternity. The United States of America is not going to turn the world upside down and become heaven. It's just not going to. That never has been. God, that's never been painted in Scripture as what God's intention was. We are simply a piece in the puzzle. Now, is that a fatalistic view? No, it's not a fatalistic view. It's a realistic view that God has a plan for you and me. But Satan can reach in there and he can cloud the water so much that we can become so distracted on other things that we lose sight of what our initial calling is. What's our initial calling? What's our big calling? What is a great commission? Go into the world. Make disciples. What did you say, Ross? And preach the gospel. That's right. And all the world. Preach the gospel. Here's the thing, guys. That's our role. We can get very sidetracked, caught up with all of the different debates and all of the different, you know, listen, I don't care who is elected president. 
whether it's a Democrat, whether it's a liberal, you know, a, a Democrat or a, a, a Republican or whether it's an independent, I if you're putting your hope in them, you're putting your hope in the wrong place. I don't care who it is. Put your hope in Jesus Christ. Paul says, listen, they've been put there for a purpose. Follow their rules. If you do and follow their rules, it'll go well with you. If you don't follow their rules, it will go bad for you. And so here's one thing that we see is that you're going, well, Pastor Don, there's a lot of things that they're telling us to do that, that are, are against what God would want us to do. All right, well, if it's something that you can point out in Scripture that is absolutely against what it is that the Lord would have us to do, and, and, and Scripture tells us that you are to do it, and they're telling you not to do it, the government is telling you not to do it, there is your one exception clause in Scripture. When the government edicts conflict scriptural edicts, when, when the, exception, the exception is in subjecting ourselves uh, to a government as Christians under the authority of our government, and, and that's when the government tells us to do something that scripture tells us not to do. And there's you know, quite a few examples in scripture. I don't have time to go through every one of them, but there's, there's a few. Exodus chapter, if you're a note taker and you want to go back and look up these kinds of things. Exodus chapter 1, verse 17, the midwives you know, that had been told by Pharaoh, kill every, one of the, kill every baby that is brought forth from the womb. Kill them. Every, every male child that comes out of the womb, kill them. Every Hebrew child that comes out of the, out of the womb, kill them. And, and, and these midwives, they said, no, I'm not going to do that. And Moses was born. You think we needed Moses? Yeah, I think so. I think Moses was a good call. Think that the midwives did what was right? I think so. Did they do, were they, did they do something that was completely and totally against what the government told them to do? Yes. Why? Because it wasn't biblical. Daniel chapter 3, we talked about you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, but, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you remember the official edict, the government edict was to bow down when you hear the, the lyre and the harp and the, and, and the timbrels playing. You know, bow down to the king. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when that all happened, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not bow down. Daniel chapter 3, verse 16 through 18, they, Nebuchadnezzar said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who do you think you are? Don't you understand the rule? I'm sure, here's the thing. I'm sure you just didn't hear the sound of the music and, and you forgot to bow down. But here's the rule. The rule is you got to bow down. And they look back and say, hey, you shall not have any gods before me, nor should you bow down to them. Nebuchadnezzar was being lifted up and honored as a god. And so here's the thing. Nebuchadnezzar, God's servant. Now we got a, we got a conundrum, don't we? Wait a minute. God called this guy to be his man. And now you've got some of God's boys. And they got a conflict. Because the man that God was, was God's servant, Nebuchadnezzar, he elevates himself as God. And he wants everybody to bow down to him as God. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God's boys, they said, yeah, that's not of God. I'm not going to bow down to you. He said, listen, it must be that because you just didn't hear the sound of the musical instruments playing. Well, we'll play them again. You guys bow down. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego swallowed hard and said, King, though you play that a million times, we're never going to bow down to you. We're just not going to do it. We're called to bow down to God and God alone, and you're not him. Pretty sure. 
Well, I'm going to throw you, and it infuriated him. I'm going to throw you into the furnace. And he heated it up seven times more and threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace, which doesn't make sense. I mean, if you really want to kill somebody, just cool it down some. You know, make them suffer in there. Nebuchadnezzar was out of his mind, heated up seven times more. He killed some of his greatest warriors by them throwing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into this very, very hot oven. And then Nebuchadnezzar went back on his high horse, sat back and just said, yeah, who's going to defy me now? And he's looking into there and going, yeah, look at me, King Nebuchadnezzar. Everything I say is perfect. What do I see in there? Wait a minute. How many people did we throw in there? We threw three, sir. Well, then how come I see three Or how come I see four and the fourth one looks like the Son of God? They're walking around. They're not even bound anymore. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out of that seven times hotter fire that totally toasted some of my best warriors. Come out of that fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walked out of the fire. The only thing that wasn't burned, they didn't even smell like they were singed. The only thing that burned off them were the things that were binding their hands and their feet. They walked out. Not a scorch mark on them. Your King Nebuchadnezzar, what does that do to you? Kind of freaks you out a little bit. Shadrach, Meshach, and it all started out because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego chose to not do what the government said they were supposed to do because it wasn't appropriate because of what the word of God said. You see? Daniel, he was called on the carpet. Daniel chapter 6, verse 7 and 10, it talks about how he prayed. Another king's in there and, and, and because Darius is in there and, and here's the thing. Bow down to the statue. And Daniel doesn't do it. He, he goes in his place and he prays three times a day. They tried. To, they hated Daniel. His the the other governing officials that were around hated Daniel. They wanted to kill him because he had the ear. He was the second most powerful man under Darius. And and here they tried to get Daniel. And Daniel, you need to bow down. Daniel goes, I'm not bowing down to any of that. I'm going to go and bow down to Christ. I'm going to go bow down to God, not Christ. Christ wasn't on the scene at the time. So he did what the government officials opposite of what the government told him he was supposed to do. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John told not to preach in Jesus' name anymore. Did they? Of course they did. Then they brought him back the next chapter and says, did we not tell you that, I mean, they beat him. They said, now, didn't we tell you not to preach in his name? And Peter says, whether it's right in your eyes or God's, you choose, you figure it out, but we cannot but speak the name of Christ. I don't care what the governing authorities are telling me to do. God's called me. Jesus has called me to go into the world. Should I not do that because the government tells me I'm not supposed to? Peter and John says, no, I'm going to do what God tells me to do and not you. And I don't worry about whether you can take my body, take my soul, you can't, or take my body and, and hurt my body and destroy my body because you know what? You can't touch my soul. That's God's. Here's the thing, guys. We're to be living for the Lord. The judgment that chapter verse 2 says, you know, it's not a divine judgment. Therefore, whoever resists the authority, resists the ordinance of God. I'm going to go through this very quickly. And those who resist will bring judgment upon themselves. That's not a divine judgment. That's a judgment here on earth. You know, in other words, you're going to go to jail. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. 
Do you want to be unafraid of authority, of the authority? Then do what's good. And you'll have praise from the same, for he is God's minister to you for good. A, a, A minister is literally a servant. Nebuchadnezzar was a servant of God. He was a minister of God. He was a servant of God. For he is a God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he doesn't bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Again, Paul is in the midst of Nero being the the Caesar. Ruthless, horrible politics. Ruthless, horrible king and ruler. And yet, Paul is saying, hey, you need to do what he's saying. You need to do what he says, unless it is against what the word of God is saying. You see, all governments are, whether good or evil, are, they act as a deterrent to crime. Just do what the government tells you to do, and you're not going to be in trouble with the government. If you obey the law of the land which, with which you reside, government will typically not just leave you alone, but sometimes they'll even praise you at times, as it says here. It says that, you know, if you do what's good there in verse 3, you'll have praise from the government. You'll have praise from the same. You know, but it's okay to use the law to your advantage. I don't have time to look that up, but Paul talks about in Acts chapter 16, verse 37 and 40. Paul also talks about in Acts chapter 22, verse 25 through 29, where he uses his Roman citizenship for his advantage. He uses what the government has set forth. He says, are you going to beat an uncondemned Roman? You're going to beat an uncondemned Roman? And the first time he was beaten. And he says, and, and, and when they found out that they beat an uncondemned Roman, because that was against the law, that was against Roman law, you cannot beat a, a Roman citizen unless he has gone through a trial. They beat Paul. And there is he's licking his wounds there in the prison. They find out he's a Roman citizen. And they begin to start quaking in their boots because you know what? Here's the thing. If you beat a Roman citizen, whoever was privy to that, every authority is going to come under the same exact condemnation that that Roman citizen just endured. And so they're freaking out. They're tired. They're freaking out. They're afraid. Wait a minute. And so the leaders, they go, go back and tell Paul to, to just leave town. And Paul goes there in, in, chapter, in chapter 16. He goes, no way. You go get those, you go get those guys and you tell them to come down here and open these prison doors and let me out. You tell them leaders to come down here and let me out. I want to see them eye to eye. And they go down there shaking in their boots and they open up and they say, just please leave. And Paul, he says, he basically is setting the groundwork there going, hey, don't mess with my church. Don't mess with the people that have started to come to know God under me lest I bring this stuff back up. Paul used his Roman citizenship to further the gospel and to protect the church there. He says in verse 5, Therefore you must subject, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. We don't follow the law of the land simply because of the fear of the consequence of the wrath of the government. We follow the law because it lends to a clear conscience. Paul, Paul talks to Timothy and one, the second to his last letter that he wrote. He wrote one letter to Timothy and first, for his first letter to Timothy. He said, listen, Timothy, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. Paul says, listen, I want to have a clear conscience, a good conscience. When you're living right before the eyes of the government, when you're driving down the street and you see a, a cop behind you, what's your first thing that you do? 
What is the first thing you do if you see a cop behind you? <laughs> Jeremy says pray. Huh? <laughs> oh, break, break, break. I'm sorry, I thought you said pray. Huh? What? I heard others. What? You check what? Your speedometer, you know? It's it's so funny. You see you see guys doing 70 miles an hour on the freeway. If there's a cop way over, pulled somebody over, everybody slows down to like 50. Well, I don't want to get busted. Don't get busted. You know, if a cop is on the side of the road, not even pulled over anybody. They just see a cop on the road. Oh, 50, 55. It's 70 miles an hour. 50, 55. Man, I am not going to get pulled over. That's a guilty conscience. When you, when, you know, it, it's a proof of our guilty conscience when you look in your rearview mirror and you see a cop back there and your first initial reaction is, how fast am I going? The idea is you should already know how fast you're going. Listen, I'm not throwing stones here because I'm living in a big glass house. But here's the thing. That's our first initial reaction. We check to make sure. But here's the thing. When you have nothing to hide, I love it since I became a Christian and, and I, I'm clean. <laughs> I, I don't do drugs. I don't drink alcohol. I don't do any of those things. Back when I wasn't clean and I wasn't walking right with God, uh, it freaked me out anytime a cop was anywhere in my vicinity. If I'm driving home at night, it freaks me out if I just see a cop. You know, it's one of these, you know, these, these drives. You're driving along, you see a cop going by. You don't even turn your head to look at him. You just go, You know, you don't even look at him. I don't even want to make eye contact with him. I don't want that little mental thing happening and him going, hey, I wonder where that guy's going. Woo, 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 and light you up. You're nervous because you're afraid because he's gonna, if he does pull you over, you're going to go to jail. You, you, it's a clear conscience. Just do what's right. When you're, when you're clean, that's the thing that I've always... Been, I, I, I even to this day still feel good about that. I, I like it when I'm cruising at, say, 1 o'clock in the morning. Say I'm, I'm, I'm leaving here or somewhere else, you know, and it's late and I see a cop out on the road and I pass him by. I'm driving the speed limit, you know, I'm cruising along and, and I see a cop. I'm just going, that's cool. My tag's good. I, I'm good. He can pull me over. Give me a breathalyzer. I'm going to pass. I can walk this straight line. Well, I think I will, you know. I can probably do all the little sobriety things and all that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm feeling good. I am not worried about that cop whatsoever because I'm living in good conscience because I'm obeying the law. I'm not drinking and driving. I'm not speeding. I'm not driving recklessly. I'm driving with my seatbelt on. My tag is up to date. You see, I'm doing everything that the law tells me I'm supposed to do and so I'm not freaking out. But if you're not doing any of those things, you're living with and you, you follow a, a, a guilty conscience. Paul says in his, his last letter that he wrote to Timothy in verse uh, 3 of 2 Timothy verse one, chapter 1, verse 3, he says, I thank God whom I serve with a good conscience or a pure conscience. To live with a pure conscience before God is what Paul and I and the Lord would have all of us to do. Here's the thing. It goes on in verse 6 and we'll finish. For because of this you also pay taxes for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. And I know that even as you read these verses and hear these verses and I, I you know I, I, I close with this basically you look at that and you hear something in there that should elicit a, re, a response or a, a reminder to your mind of something that Jesus said many you know years prior to this a few quite a few years before this and here's the thing and that's this 
For because of this, you also pay taxes for their God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. So render, therefore, to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes, customs to who customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Here's the thing. He says, listen, if you think, well, Jesus didn't pay taxes, that's false because Jesus, it's recorded in Scripture that Jesus paid taxes. He, he paid taxes. Peter said, hey, they're asking us to pay taxes. And, and Peter and Jesus goes, well, all right, here's the thing. Go down to the river, go down to the sea, cast in your, your hook, and I, I think this would be a cool way to pay taxes. You know, Go fishing, and the fish that you bring up is going to have enough money in its mouth to pay for both you and our taxes. Cool. Wouldn't that be cool if Jesus was like like cruising around, you know, you were kind of hanging out with Jesus like on, on April 14th or 15th? And and he goes, oh, hey, hey, go go fishing. Hey, Corinne's really into fishing right now. Hey, go fishing. The fish that you pull out, it's going to have enough to pay your taxes and mine. <laughs> it would be wild, wouldn't it? You know, you go in there, you pull it out. 1500 bucks? I'm going to buy a new TV. No, pay taxes with it. I'm going to put new rims on my car. No, pay taxes with it. Jesus said, Peter, you pay taxes for us. It's for us, both of us. But you remember when, when they tried to trick Jesus into, hey, Caesar tells us to pay taxes. What do you say? And they're trying to trick Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, give me a coin. You know the, you know the verse and you know how this all ends. And this is a great ending spot right here. And that is this. Jesus says, throw me a coin. Somebody had a coin, they threw it to Jesus. And Jesus, he holds the coin up and he says, hey, whose inscription is on this coin? And they said, well, that's Caesar's image. And Jesus, I I think he probably let that statement sink in for just a second before he flipped the coin back to the person who just flipped it to him. He says, well, then render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. Now, lest this be be lost on some of you because it took me a, a few times hearing this before it just dawned on me that, wait a minute. Okay, I'm supposed to give to Caesar the things that I have his inscription on. Okay, and then I've got to dedicate things to God that are supposed to be God's. And I always kind of took it that way until I started really going back into the book of Genesis and, 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 and Jesus, or, and, and God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, there in Genesis chapter 1, it says, let us make man in our image. Do you understand that when you look yourself in the mirror, you are inscribed with the image of God? And so here's the thing. You might not feel that way. You might go, ah, it's ugly. I mean, God must be ugly. No, listen, you're not ugly. Here's the thing. You are exactly who it is that God created you to be. You are exactly who God created you to be. And God says, here's the thing. The inscription that is on the coin, that's not eternal. Pay your taxes. Render to Caesar. Render taxes or customs or whatever you are owed, owing someone, give it to them. But I want you to look in the mirror. Your very person that you are is the image of of God. So render 
your person to God. Submit, subject, surrender yourself to God. It's not about governments, guys. It's not about picketing, and it's not about our next president of the United States in this country. If you think that that is our hope, you are sorely mistaken, and you've been distracted by the enemy. Never in Scripture are we called to reform a government. Only in Scripture are we called to go into the world and preach the gospel. That's our job. It's not about the United States government. It's not about what person is sitting in the White House. It's about Jesus Christ who is sitting on his throne and has never left it. We serve one God and the government is upon his shoulders. Let's live for his government. Amen. Father, thank you so much for today. Bless, Lord, this time. And I know that we're living in a very uh, political, uh, uneasy time in our country, in this world. Pray, God, that you would help us to not get distracted by so many things that would cause us to not be about what it is that you've really called us to do, and that's to spread the gospel. It's about Jesus Christ and him crucified. God, I, and, and we're so sorry that sometimes we make it about the United States of America or about world governments or about ideologies or philo- philosophical ideas or the, the, the economic ideas or anything like that. Lord, it, it, is, it is not about any of those things. It is about Jesus Christ and him crucified. We're reminded, as Paul says, I did, when I came to you, I didn't come to you with excellency of speech. When I came to you, I just determined to know one thing, and that's Jesus Christ and him crucified. God, help us to live with that exhortation that the rest of the remaining days that we have to live for you, that we dedicate them to live for Jesus Christ and him crucified. For in so doing, we're fulfilling the plan that you have for us. Doesn't mean that we're not to vote. Doesn't mean that we're not to, to take interest in any politics whatsoever. But it means everything when it, me, when it comes to what it is that we're called to wake up with on the doorstep of our life, and that is to go into the world this day. Help us, Lord, to be used by you mightily in these last days that we are living. In Jesus' name, amen.